Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 220 for the 4th of November, 2015. Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin once again. Hi, Paul. Uh, sorry I missed you last week. Well, you were out and about. I was busy enough, so we both uh, got an unexpected week off. I actually managed to speak at five events last week, and, and at three of the five things that I attended, uh, we had Chat Chat listeners come up and, and greet me and uh, thank us for the podcast. So uh, I thought I would pass that along and, of course, thank all of our listeners for supporting us and, and uh, sending in your ideas. And feel free to uh, drop some feedback to us on, on iTunes with a good rating so more people can find us, or you can drop us a note if you want. Uh, any any uh, news you'd like to bring up, Duck? Well, I know you were quite keen on me mentioning the Sophos puzzle we did that ended this Monday morning, or more accurately, at midnight on Sunday Hawaii time. Don't know why I picked that. Seemed a good idea. One of the things I noticed uh, while puzzling through the bits and tips that you were posting and reading through the blog articles was uh, a reference to Octal, and it seems like only in puzzles do I ever have the opportunity to practice my Octal anymore. just seemed the easiest word to describe a three-bit lookup table was to say that each entry is an octal digit. And I, I assume that we had uh, plenty of winners. I know that we were going to give out prizes to the first five who entered, and then I think a drawing from the remaining uh, correct entries. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the first five who know who they are, or should do from Twitter, uh, are guaranteed a dance like no one's watching t-shirt, and 15 of the remaining solvers will be drawn randomly. And we did get more than 15, so not everyone will win a prize. However, you can buy those shirts for yourself if you like. Just go to shop.sophos.com, uh, where you can also get the cool socks. Yeah, not only can you get uh, cool socks on the sofa store, you can, you can buy a surfboard. You can. 900 of your American dollars, I believe. Uh, apparently, they're pretty jolly good surfboards. Though, not being a surfer, I am simply repeating what somebody said to me. Well, perhaps if I got a million dollars for finding an, a, a click-to-own exploit in iOS, I might have some spare cash to, uh, to pick me up one of these surfboards and perhaps some lessons. Wow, what a story that was. Vupen, a controversial bug-finding company that kind of vanished from sight in the middle of this year, kind of reappeared as Zerodium, which is a kind of very upscale exploit broker which basically means they buy an exploit from X and sell it to Y, presumably for a profit. And they came out with all PR guns blazing, saying, we'll pay up to $3 million for three click-to-own, full-on iOS vulnerabilities. And they only left a few weeks until the end of October. And then suddenly, on Twitter, appeared this notification that said, oh, well, well done, uh, one lot has won the prize. So we'll be paying a million dollars. But uh, quite a bit of smoke and mirrors at the moment. Uh, and even if it's true, Apple won't get informed because, of course, then Apple would fix the bug for everybody. And that would spoil the game for this company's offensive customers. Um, hang on, I better say that better. <laughs> By that, I don't mean to imply that the customers necessarily cause offence. But those who wish to buy these exploits so, so they can use them to attack other people, whether that's for surveillance or some other yet more nefarious purpose. 
Well, wouldn't wouldn't it be amusing though if this was just a front company for Apple? Like maybe Apple decided to take some of this uh, multi tens of billions of dollars war chest they have and pretend to be exploit brokers to see if they could mop up all the zero days in iOS. Yes, because Apple famously does not pay bug bounties, even though they have an increasingly good reputation for being responsive with security fixes. They're being open about fixing lots of vulnerabilities that maybe a few years ago you mentioned for a company like Apple would have been almost too embarrassing to admit to. I think if Apple were going to go down the bug bounty route, they'd want to do it on Apple's terms with Apple's brand eye bounty or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I certainly suspect there's more of a flavor of this to a hacking team than there is to Tim Cook. One of the larger stories getting attention on Naked Security this week was related to a telecoms provider in the UK known as TalkTalk. Talk. They seem to have lost a small, medium or large amount of customer-related data. Unfortunately, even though it's now a couple of weeks since all of this happened, as so often happens with breaches, they're still not quite sure exactly what happened and who got what, as far as I can see. Well, that's the thing, I guess, from, from what we do know, certainly it was a small, medium, and large amount of data. I mean, in different buckets and different types of data, still quite unclear as to how. I mean, there was speculation about denial of service attacks. There was speculation about SQL injection. Um, uh, there were two teenagers arrested. Yes, I believe a third chap, age 20, has been arrested in the UK. What's not yet clear is exactly what connection these guys are supposed to have had to this particular attack, and indeed whether it's all, if you like, one breach. There's also, of course, the possibility that when TalkTalk went looking because they found there was this attack on their site, then they found a whole load of other anomalies. We might be looking at multiple breaches that have just all been noticed at one time because something bad happened. I mean, the, the, the story is not that uncommon from the standpoint of finding breaches once some breach becomes public. I mean, we've seen this with, with other attacks in the past as well. But it's also not a good look to have had so much arguably sensitive information unprotected in these databases and, and you know, I guess sort of kind of falling back on the, uh, you know, the government or the nanny state didn't come down and tell us we had to protect that data. So we only protected what we needed to. Yes, my understanding is TalkTalk pretty much admitted that they don't use encryption to store their data because that's not required. If this were a SQL injection attack, which is where you trick the database from the outside to give up data that it is allowed to decrypt anyway, then encryption at rest isn't going to help you. But that's a sort of poor reason not to have encryption at all. The fact that they just haven't bothered because they didn't need to doesn't paint a very rich and rewarding picture of the extent to which they consider, if you like, security part of their journey. Well, yeah, it's very similar to this 000 web host, which apparently had zero security, zero intent to protect their customers and zero care whether they actually got it done. Oh, is that why it's 000? I thought it was to come at the top of the search engine list, but I think your explanation is much more reasonable, <laughs> certainly much more accurate. Yeah, I mean, they had a breach like, what, over a year ago, they were told by some rather well-intentioned, um, uh, if not white hat, certainly gray hat, if we want to get into coloring our hats. The, the truth of the matter is, they don't seem to really care about any of it. Why encrypt passwords? Why use HTTPS? Why do any of these things when you're offering a free web service? And 
you know, without picking on that entire industry too badly, it is something we see over and over again amongst either free web hosts and or very, very budget web hosts that may charge, say, uh, $2 a month or a pound a month for service. Not only are they potentially not securing their customers' information very well, but they also, they don't really have time or money for security when they're running that type of service. And when I, you know, looked into some of the Linux research I did earlier this year on, uh, you know, Linux machines hosting uh, exploit kits and, and malware and things to infect Windows hosts, the vast majority of the machines hosting all of that stuff were these free or near free web host services that seem to be more than happy to turn a blind eye to security. It seems just there's been a follow-up from the CEO of No, No, No web host to say, oh, well, actually, our paid-for services are all okay. And it's not clear whether he's saying, well, the guys didn't get into those yet, or if he's saying, well, we do bother to use things like salting, hashing, and stretching on passwords in the paid services. I would have thought it would actually be more difficult to split up your services so the free ones had weaker security if you were already doing it properly in the paid services. Yeah, this to me feels like a, a Wyndham FTC kind of moment going, there's a, there's a bare minimum amount of due care that you should exercise when collecting information from people and to not do anything whatsoever to protect it and, to, and, and, and you know, arguably not make people aware of that. This is speculation, but you could make the case, of course, that the reason that they kept plain text passwords for the 13 million users of the free service was to cut the cost of support when people forgot their passwords. It's exactly the approach we don't need, because it's just setting and reinforcing poor standards. If that's how you treat your free customers, they're never going to improve their behavior and do things that are good for the rest of us, and we will be stuck, as you found, with those penguins that attack. And of course, uh, just this last weekend was Halloween. And uh, here in Canada, for some reason, we're not even Canada, here in Vancouver, Canada, we sort of combine the Guy Fawkes Day tradition with, with Halloween and have a bit of uh, explosive fireworks on Halloween. Chester, can I just ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Do you get non-explosive fireworks? <laughs> Well, I actually, I, I learned the difference between a firecracker and fireworks when I was researching this story, which is that firecrackers are explosive without a pyrotechnic display, whereas a firework has to include a pyrotechnic display. So, Got to have the colored smoke and the, and the sparkly glitter, man, or it doesn't count. <laughs> that, that leads us to a researcher from Yahoo who likes to call herself Crypto Witch, which sort of fits in with the... Halloween theme here. Doesn't sound terribly scientific, though, does it? I, I think I would find a better moniker myself. That's just a little hint to her. But never mind. It's a free world, apparently. Well, yeah, I, th I thought it was an interesting uh, write-up that you did on Naked Security about it, because it includes a side-channel attack, and it's often very difficult to get the concept of uh, information leakage through a side channel across to people. And I thought this one was sort of a little bit obvious. It was a good way to explain what, how a side channel attack works. There's a thing called HSTS, HTTP Strict Transport Security, which is a way for a website to tell your browser, listen, when you visit me in future, never use HTTP, even if the user accidentally tries to, just skip that bit, come straight to me with HTTPS. Very easy to implement. It's just a header that comes back. 
But of course, every time a server tells your browser something and your browser remembers it and adapts its behavior the next time it visits that server, you kind of have a cookie. And if it's a cookie that can't be deleted because the browser keeps it anyway, then it's kind of a what often called a super cookie. And what this researcher did, uh, Yan Zhu, I hope I've said that right, from Yahoo, she set out to figure out could she actually exploit this. And she found that there was a subtle and sometimes, if not always, measurable difference between when you visit a site that uses HSTS the first time and when you visit it subsequently. And the difference, of course, is because if you go to the HTTP version of the site at first, then you'll get redirected to HTTPS and then you'll get this, if you like, HSTS super cookie set. The next time you try and visit the HTTP site, your browser will do the redirect before there's any network traffic. And she was able to show that in some cases you can measure the difference and therefore you can go through a long list of sites via a web page and you can guess which sites somebody has visited before. Yeah, I think part of the answer to this problem is that uh, everything just start using HTTPS all the time. And we've mentioned this on the podcast before, hoping that Mozilla and others might start making browsers try HTTPS by default, and that might lead more sites to disabling HTTP entirely, not just redirecting the way, say, a PayPal or someone does. We really aren't going to see HTTP go away until we get you know, into the standard being that everything is is secure. And I'm really happy with uh, the movement forward we've made with more and more sites getting into security. So maybe we'll maybe we'll reach that tipping point in 2016. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Uh, in addition to the Java plugin being dead, and hopefully maybe we can start uh, doing the autopsy on Flash next year. Maybe we can we can uh, uh, put HTTP down in the ground with it. Did you say next year? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. A year on which planet? <laughs> was that Mars or somewhere further out? Hopefully not a plutonic year. Oh, Pluto's not a planet anymore. Sorry, blundered that one, didn't I? Thank you, Dr. Tyson. So on that note, I will conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 220. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on RSS via TuneIn over at iTunes or at soundcloud.com slash sofasecurity. And until next time, stay secure. It is a bummer about Pluto. It really is.